Well, good morning again, and thanks for joining us here at Prairie View Christian Church on this Sunday of all Sundays. Now, last week, Palm Sunday, set the stage for this week, Easter Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus intentionally embraced royal imagery for his so-called triumphal entry. He rode a humble donkey, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning Israel's future king. He walked a metaphorical red carpet of cloaks and palm branches, a symbol of life, peace, and victory. He was surrounded by crowds shouting, Hosanna, an appeal to God for salvation. These crowds believed that the once glorious throne of King David would soon be reoccupied. They believed the once chosen city of Jerusalem would soon be restored to its former glory, its kingdom reunited. And they believed the once destroyed temple of God's presence would again be redeemed. Generations of promises and hopes and expectations Anticipation and dreams all rode on Jesus' shoulders as he rode into Jerusalem. But Jesus' disciples knew, or at least they should have known, that Jesus had other plans. He told his disciples three separate times what would happen to him in Jerusalem. He would be delivered to the religious leaders, condemned to death, handed over to the Gentiles, Mocked, flogged, and crucified. It would all go downhill from here. But this was all part of Jesus' plan. He must do these things in order to accomplish his true mission of defeating sin, death, and Satan himself. He must do these things to inaugurate an eternal city and an everlasting kingdom. He must do these things to give all of God's people, both Jew and Gentile, access to God's presence. He would do it by suffering. He would do it by dying. Jesus has convinced himself that somehow, some way, his life could serve as a ransom for many. Now, last week we ended by reading Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It's a poem or a hymn written by the Apostle Paul years after the events of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. It's a two-part passage. Last week we read part one, often referred to as the descent. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Today we read the second half of that hymn, and naturally it's referred to as the ascent. Picking up Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So what happens between verse eight and verse nine of Philippians two? How does Paul go from descent to ascent? How do we go from humiliation to exaltation? How does Jesus go from taking the form of a servant to being worshipped? How can a man who dies on a cross in the Gospel of Matthew be glorified in the book of Philippians? One word. It's the primary word of Easter. The word that featured in each of Jesus' three predictions that the disciples must have been too overwhelmed to understand. That one word is resurrection. So open your Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 32. Feel free to follow along as we go. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to... Be in a church worshiping you. So many of us, most of us, I think, last year we were not in a church worshiping you on Easter Sunday. And while we can worship you in living rooms and bedrooms and patios and decks and porches, away from brothers and sisters in Christ, there is nothing like worshiping you in a building that is dedicated to your glory, to your service, with brothers and sisters close by. And even though this is not back to normal, this is certainly better than we were last year. And so, Lord, thank you for Easter 2021, the privilege of being here and worshiping you for it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story that we've probably heard before. But, Lord, I pray that we would be just as captivated by it today as we ever have been before, even more so. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are hearing this story for the first time and haven't believed it. I pray for those of us who have heard it time and time and time again. I pray that we'd be in awe of it. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for Palm Sunday. Thank you for Good Friday. Thank you for today, Easter Sunday. Thank you that you, Lord, are alive. We love you. We ask this all in your name, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we can't just skip from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. We have to go through the days in between. Throughout his week in Jerusalem, Jesus' confrontations with the religious leaders become more heated to the point that they begin plotting, scheming, and conniving his death. Jesus' words to his disciples become more tense. He warns them of the coming destruction of the temple, persecution for their faith, and the final day of judgment. A random woman anoints Jesus with expensive ointment, while the confused disciples look on. Jesus takes this to be preparation for his burial. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, telling them that it will be their last meal together. And speaking of bread as his broken body and wine as his poured out blood. 
Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane while three of his disciples sleep. One leads a gang to arrest him, and the other eight flee. Jesus is denied three times by the one disciple who claimed to love him the most. Tried unjustly by his own people. Thrown to the wolves by the one man who could spare him. And sentenced to death on a Roman cross while a criminal goes free. Jesus is once again hailed as a king. But this time sarcastically. He wears a purple robe that isn't his. Is cut by a crown of thorns. And is beaten with his own scepter. That takes us to Matthew 27 verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Good Friday is rock bottom. The only thing that could possibly make Friday good is something that simply doesn't happen. Something we all know is impossible. One word. Resurrection. Things look bad, don't they? A week that began with so much optimism, so much potential, has turned into a tragedy. But just like he was on Palm Sunday, Jesus is in complete control on Good Friday. He was in control of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he's in control of his shameful exit out of it. 
We already mentioned the three predictions last week. What did all three of those predictions end with? One word. Resurrection. Even as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is still in control. Psalm 22, the passage where that cry originates, ends with the expectation, the hope of deliverance from God. How can someone have hope when they're dying on a cross? One word. Resurrection. And even when he dies, Jesus yields up his spirit rather than having it taken from him. Come to think of it, Jesus has shown no interest in saving himself this entire time. How can Jesus be so willing to give up his life? One word. Resurrection. But of course, it's one thing to predict your resurrection. It's one thing to be confident of your resurrection. It's one thing to put your money where your mouth is and submit to death, believing that your resurrection really is coming. But it's another thing to actually rise. For that, we turn to Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So somehow, some way, Jesus is alive. Somehow, some way, a man who was once dead is walking and talking and giving out orders. Rebellious religious leaders, wicked worldly rulers, a treacherous disciple, a rugged cross, a heavy stone, and specially appointed Roman guards could not keep this man in the grave. Sin. All of it on his shoulders, him being the only sinless man capable of carrying the burden, couldn't win. Death, the bitterness of which he truly and fully tasted, even though he didn't deserve it, couldn't win. 
Satan. The one who introduced both sin and death to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden long ago couldn't win. The real triumph of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem wasn't when he entered the city. It's when he exited the tomb. One word. Resurrection. The rest, of course, is history. The risen Christ opponents try, unsuccessfully, to cover it up. His disciples were regathered and reinstated. He appears to hundreds of people offering proofs that he was, in fact, alive. It wasn't a trick. It wasn't an illusion. He ascends to his Father's right hand, sends the gift of the Holy Spirit, and issues the great commission to his disciples to go out and make more disciples of all nations, Galilee and everywhere else. Word spreads. Spreads so much so that you are sitting here some 2,000 years later. Easter 2021. You know, you wouldn't be here if the resurrection didn't really happen. A man born of a virgin, who never sinned, who performed miracles, who offered great moral teachings, and who died on a cross for others, but didn't rise from the dead? Well, that man would certainly be a fascinating enigma, an interesting and even admirable figure. He'd be an inspiring role model, a wonderful example, a curious subject for all kinds of theological study. But he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be worthy of worship. And if we worshiped a dead man while falsely claiming he was alive, then according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching would be in vain. Your faith would be pointless, and we would be found to be misrepresenting God. And all those who died with their hopes set on Jesus, all those who lived with their hopes set on Jesus, would all be misguided. We'd be nothing short of pitiful. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is risen. He is not here. Go and see where they lay him. Just try and find a body. I dare you. And no, despite what the specials on the History Channel later tonight tell you, a shroud doesn't count. Just try and explain how the church would have gotten off the ground without Jesus' resurrection. And no, he didn't faint His body wasn't stolen. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb. Hundreds of people don't all experience the same grief-driven hallucination. And most of all, Jesus' once cowardly disciples would not courageously be crucified years later, knowing deep down that they made it all up. He is risen. He is not here. And that's why you're here. And that's why I'm here. 
We Christians really, truly, honestly, seriously believe that Jesus is alive. So much so that we will stake our very lives on it. So much so that we will stake our eternal fate on it. And if you really want to hear something crazy, we think everyone else should too. Okay. Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. It's not exactly newsworthy on Easter Sunday. But what does Jesus' resurrection really mean for those who believe? Perhaps considering a few verses we overlooked can give us some clues. First, in Matthew 27, verse 51, we read that at Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. That curtain served to separate the holy from the common, God from man. There was a very real sense in which God justly, rightly, and even mercifully would not allow sinful humanity to enter his presence. But at Jesus' death and resurrection, that curtain is torn in two. Top to bottom. Heaven to earth. By faith in the risen Christ, sinners like us have access to God in a way that we never have before. God hasn't changed. He's just as righteous and holy as he ever has been. But we've been changed. We've been justified. Our sins have been covered by Jesus' body and blood. You have been forgiven. You can come into the presence of the holy God with the peace and confidence of a child, a friend, and a servant. Rather than an orphan, an enemy, or a rebel. You can come into God's holy presence because you have been made holy yourself. And that is by faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Second, in Matthew 27, 52 and 53, we read that right around the time of Jesus' death, there was an earthquake. Tombs in Jerusalem busted open and dead people started walking around town. Now, there's some debate about how to interpret these verses, especially the timing of them. Did this all happen right when Jesus died? Or did it happen when Jesus rose? There's an earthquake in chapter 28. Were there two earthquakes or just one? Well, cutting through all the weeds, know this. When Jesus dies and rises, dead people live. When Jesus dies and rises, dead people live. Those who believe in him have new life right now. We are no longer dead in our sins and our trespasses. So why would we go on living in them? And those who believe in him will have new life in the future. One day we will live as Jesus now lives. While death is still around, we don't fear it the way we once did. Because Jesus has died and Jesus has risen, dead people live. It's true of him, and it's true of us. 
Third, there's an ironic and unexpected announcement from a centurion and his cronies in Matthew 27, verse 54. He says, truly, this was the son of God. Many have wondered whether or not this hardened Roman soldier could fully grasp just how true his words were. Was he confessing an authentic and informed faith in Jesus? Or was he just overwhelmed by how different this crucifixion was from all the others that he had likely overseen? Either way, what really matters isn't whether or not that centurion truly confessed and believed. What matters today is whether or not you do. Who do you say Jesus is this Easter Sunday? Do you believe? Do you confess that Jesus truly was and still is the Son of God? Regardless of how you answer that question right now, someday, eventually, one way or another, all will make the same confession that that centurion did. Someday all will proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. Look back at Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, every single one of us will bow. One day, every single one of us will confess that Jesus is Lord. He will return in power and glory, and all will rise, either to judgment or to reward. Some will confess that Jesus is Lord begrudgingly, because they have no choice but to acknowledge him like the demons who believe and shudder. Others will confess that Jesus is Lord joyfully, like the women who told the disciples the good news that the tomb was empty. He is not here. He is risen. But one day he will be here again. And that entry will be truly triumphant. At that entry, there will be no misunderstanding about who he is and what he's come to do. When that entry arrives, we will all see the risen Christ in all his glory. So may we all confess, may we all believe that truly this man is the son of God. And by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we live the new life he's called us to now. And look forward to the new life he has for us in eternity. Because we worship a God. We worship a Lord. We worship a king of resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we worship you, the living God. You are not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. 
And you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise, our adoration. You are worthy of every single bit of glory that we can somehow offer you with our fallen mouths, out of our fallen hearts, even in our fallen minds. But Lord, you are bringing us to new life day in and day out. You are shaping us and forming us and recreating us to be the image bearers you actually made us to be. You made us to worship you. You made us to love you. You made us to honor and obey and enjoy you forever. But left to ourselves, we are dead. Left to ourselves, we are lifeless. Left to ourselves, there's nothing there. But you are a God of resurrection. You've raised your son to new life. You've raised us to new life of worship. And you will raise us to new life eternally worshiping you. So Lord, remind us that we serve a risen Christ. Remind us that we serve a risen Lord. Remind us that we serve a risen King. Help us live new life now, brought about by your Spirit. Help us look forward to the life we have in the future. And may we be bearers. May we be delegates. May we be representatives of this new life that you offer in a world that so desperately needs it. We glorify you. We love you. We thank you that you are risen. We ask this all in your name, Lord. Amen.